Hey everyone, welcome to the 256th episode of the Internet of Things podcast. This is your host, Stacey Higginbotham, and your co-host, Kevin Toffel. And we have a stellar show for you today. We're going to be talking once again about Ring, where we've got data on how many smart speakers have been sold. Plus, there's that bracelet of silence you've probably read about. We've got fundraising from a really interesting company, and China's response to the coronavirus is kind of a cautionary tale for the Internet of Things. Plus, we have got lots of news. You can now do custom 5G networks for IoT. We've got news on ISPs, a Bluetooth startup getting lots of money, a cybersecurity warning because it is a day that ends in Y, and Kevin has a new project he's going to tell you about. Plus, we're going to hear from our sponsor, Digicert, and I have our guest, Taj Menku, who is CEO and co-founder of Cognitive Systems, coming on the show to talk about how the technology works and why we shouldn't freak out quite so much about how its RF sensing technology could potentially invade our privacy. All right, all this and more, but first, a message from another one of our sponsors. This week's sponsor is Very. Are you looking for an IoT development team who's been there, done that? Vary's award-winning, full-service IoT development firm will work with you to deliver your IoT solution on time and on budget. Learn more at www.verypossible.com. That's www.veryposible.com. Okay, Kevin, first up, welcome back. Last yes. week you were sick, but you're better? I am better. It was a really nasty flu that uh, put me in bed for about a week. So, yes, I'm back and feeling pretty much 100%. All right. I'm not going to ask you if you got your flu vaccine, because that's everyone's response. And you're like, even if you did, sometimes you still get the flu. And it wouldn't matter at this point anyway. Yeah, you're right. All right. Are you ready to talk about Ring? You left and, oh, Ring is still in the news. This time, they've done something good. Last week. Nest said that they were going to mandate two-factor authentication. This week, Ring is coming out saying, all right, yeah, two-factor, it's the way to go. If only somebody had been saying this for the past several years now. But finally, they're back. So what Ring is saying is Ring is going to mandate that users enter a one-time six-digit code sent via email or SMS whenever they try to log in to see the state of their cameras. So. That's good. But <laughs> what about this idea that you have to like, is it every time you log in? I don't believe so. Because I've had two factor on my Nest account. And when I log into the account the first time on the mobile app, yes, I am prompted for the code an authentication code. Subsequent opening of the app, I don't have to do that. So unless you physically log out of the mobile app, and re-log back in. You should not have to do this. So it, I would hate for people to think, yeah, every time I want to check my camera, I got to go do this. I don't think that's how Ring is going to implement it. No. Okay. Now you did just tell us that that's how Nest does it. The, what you were describing was how Nest does that it. That is correct. That is correct. So okay. yes. Yeah, so. And that makes sense. I will say that I have some devices that like once a month or once every two months, they do log me out and mm -hmm. then I have to go through the process, but sure. that's not a big deal. 
And they're specifically saying with every login. They're not saying with every time you open the app. So I, I think they're doing this the right way. If they're listening, if I would say, please consider an authentication app to provide that code. It's something that's time-based and very unique as opposed to SMS or email, but that's a whole other issue entirely. This is still a very positive thing, and I'm thrilled to see it. Yay! And, you know, a couple of weeks ago, they announced their control center. That was good. They also are letting people opt out of third-party data sharing, which is in response, I think, to stories about how Ring shares your data with Facebook and with some other companies. So they're even pausing um, temporarily the third-party analytics services in the Ring apps. So they are listening to feedback, which is good. So I will say the most interesting thing to me about this is that Ring is listening to people after six or seven months of just kind of blindly and blithely going forward. And I think this is part of a larger trend of tech companies recognizing that maybe they don't know best. Or maybe it's that they're maturing. So they're recognizing that as if they're, as their stuff gets more embedded in everyday objects and in everyday society, that maybe they have more obligations than just to make something work. Mm -hmm. It's kind of like going from an engineering mindset, like I can do it. It's cool to thinking, Hey, how is this going to affect the world around me? I don't think they're quite there yet at that last stage, but an important way of getting there is when people push back and say, yeah, okay, this works, but here's how it affects people of color. Here's how it affects different communities. And instead of saying, yeah, but it works, they actually listen to the feedback. And I hope to see more of this change. I mean, a lot of tech companies build a product, a service, whatever it is, because they can, and it's cool, but they don't question, should we do this? Or how should we roll this out. So you're right. I think it's getting away from the engineering mindset and getting user feedback and making changes. I'm not saying that the engineer mindset is bad. I love no. engineers, but there are several layers. When you're an adult, you realize there are several sides to every issue, not just, hey, can I do it? You also have to think about, should I do it? Right. And I think that's important here. So the other interesting ring story comes from a NBC is it an expose? I, I hate saying the word expose. I'm not going to say it. An investigation. The NBC News An investigation. investigation. <laughs> so what they discovered is that many police departments, some have not had ring security cameras solve any problems or solve any crimes. Some just don't know because they're not tracking it. And a couple said, yes, we've arrested a couple of people based on this. So NBC basically says that, mm, are these really helpful? Part of me is like, uh, you know, maybe they're helpful. It sounds like the ones that don't track it. I think probably if you do have a program where you encourage people in your community to buy this camera and then participate in the neighbor's app, you probably actually should be tracking how effective it is. Just just throwing that out there. <laughs> right, right. I mean, it's it's a cost-benefit thing. I mean, the, the cost of giving up uh, the video that's captured on your privately owned camera versus the benefit of maybe capturing some footage of a crime. I mean, some of the arrests that they, they NBC News um, heard from the police that used these, I saw there was, you know, they recovered a $13 book, a Nintendo Switch, a couple coffee mugs. 
Yeah, I, but somebody I mean, stole no, but somebody stole a dachshund. Yeah, granted that was valued at two hundred dollars, but that's somebody's pet. So no, I I, mean, I, if, I agree. I think there are two things, and we we actually a while back there was a story about somebody who installed a ring doorbell. It made them neurotic. They were like, ah, there's people around. Ah, there's people. <laughs> so they took it down because they didn't like being the person who was always worried about their security and safety. I think there's actually a lot of truth to that. I think certain people, when you put something like that in front, they could freak out. My my in-laws are an example of someone who might freak out about something like that. I will say the biggest benefit of having any video doorbell camera in my life has been knowing that there is a package at the door mm-hmm. and being able to get it. That is literally it. But I don't live in an area where package theft is common. You know, in some ways, watching people steal my packages would make me feel less safe. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good point. Yeah. Um, I get a lot of packages delivered here. We, I don't know of any widespread package theft, but again, I'm always home, mostly always home. It is good to see when something is delivered. Uh, the other thing I use it for, unfortunately, we have a lot of people that, uh, solicitors that walk around, window replacements, uh, siding, roofing, all this. And they're allowed to do that per our township if they have the permit. And it's so easy to not answer the door or just tell them I'm not home and so on. Got it. I think if you're one of those people who's freaking out about security, a camera may give you more peace of mind, but it may also, like the notifications may also make you realize just how much is happening outside your house, which could be bad for you. Okay. Smart speakers. We love them. According to a survey from Strategy Analytics, the sale of smart speakers last year was 146.9 million. That is up 70%. Amazon is still the winner there, but Chinese vendors and Chinese smart speakers from Baidu, Alibaba, and Xiaomi are all on the up and up. Probably going to see more of those over time because, hey, China's a big market. There's a lot of people there. Oh, yeah. And they apparently want smart speakers too. I wonder what the average number of smart speakers in a home is for homes that have them. Because like, if I look at mine, there's probably five, six, easy. Yeah, that's a good question. Um, And then the other is... You know, we're now on our third generation, like Echo Dot. I still have first generation gear in my house. At some point, it's going to die. My Echo Show, my first gen Echo Show is starting to freeze up every now and then, and it just shuts itself off. It's an Echo So no I'm show. kind of, it's an Echo No Show. Exactly. Thank you, Kevin. So I'm I'm like, oh, I'm going to have to purchase one, but I'm not really a new, a new buyer. So yeah, yeah, I'm with you on that. How saturated can the smart home market get or the smart speaker market get? It remains to be seen. Okay, speaking of smart speakers, big news last week, this week, I can't remember, was this bracelet of silence. This is a computer researchers at the University of Chicago created this bracelet. It's hideous. Uh, Bracelet's a bit of a loose term here because this is reminds me of a very hefty ankle bracelet you'd wear under house arrest, except you put it on your wrist and it's got these... I don't know, a dozen or so ultrasonic 24. Speakers. Oh, 24, two dozen then. Why? Because 12 wasn't good enough. Okay. Ultrasonic speakers that pipe out noise. Yeah. So the idea is, yeah, you pipe out enough white noise, then Amazon devices, Google devices, devices with microphones can't hear you. So I guess when you're having a private conversation, you could turn it on and then you'd be okay. It's unclear. Dogs and really young people might be able to hear the high-frequency noise. So you may also be creating a cone of irritation. But 
This reminds me of one of the, we had a guest two weeks ago, I think, a company called Paranoid that is also doing this, but they're actually doing a device that you stick next to or on top of your Echo. And it also can create this high pitch frequency noise that makes the mic not work until you turn it off manually. I kind of like that idea better because this bracelet is hideous and yeah, it's just a concept, but the cone of silence. There's some really interesting, again, pay attention to artists and hackers, because these are the people who are going to get us through the surveillance society. This isn't something you can buy. The paranoid device is something you could buy for $50, if that's something that, you know, sparks your interest. Well, it'd be $50 for each device that you want to silence, correct? Oh, right. $50 for each device you want to silence. That is true. The bracelet is not for sale. I don't know how much it would cost. I wouldn't wear it. They say they can build it for about 20 bucks, but I don't care. (laughs) It's hideous. Maybe in production, it would not be so hideous. And and maybe the idea, I get it. I do. I I get it. But I'm hoping for a smaller solution. (laughs) Yes. We'll get to this in a a minute because we've got more to say on this surveillance topic. But first, let's talk about a cool new technology also using ultrasonics, right? It does. This is Ultrasense Systems. Uh, The story hit my radar because they raised $20 million. It's their Series B round. And I'm like, okay, but what do they do? turns out they make some some interesting technology. Using 3D ultrasound, they can make just about any surface area a touch uh, interface. And the way it works, it because it's it's ultrasound, it can go through any material uh, of variable thickness. So metals, wood, plastic, ceramic, glass. So it you know, I haven't seen any of their products, but it just seemed interesting from a interface perspective that we could have touch interfaces built into just about anything. Yeah, it kind of reminds me of Project Soli, which uses ultra wideband, but still similar idea turning anything into an interface using basically RF signals that when your fingers disrupt it, in the ultra sense case, it's giving you some sort of feedback through that. In the, the solely say case, it's just taking that disruption and turning that into a command. But I think it's neat. I'm excited. I think we need more UI or user interfaces that are a little bit more intuitive to use and in more places because people, again, don't carry their phones. I know you do, Kevin, but I don't. <laughs> Plus voice can't be the interface for everything. No, no. Let's talk about dystopian surveillance societies, or as we know it, China. (laughs) I joke, except I don't, because what we're seeing with the coronavirus, which is now called COVID-19. So with COVID-19, we're seeing how exactly a surveillance state can track you based on really mostly your phone and then facial recognition and cameras everywhere. And I don't know, Kevin, in some ways, this is excellent. It's excellent that a disease like like COVID-19 arose in an area that is that mm-hmm. has this because China has been very proactive about stopping people. But it's also terrifying because we have these sort of capa- – we could have these sort of capabilities very easily. So what we're seeing is China's facial recognition, they have a company called SenseTime – they said that they can actually understand who people are. So recognize individuals, even with those, when those individuals have face masks on, mm-hmm. which is great because a lot of people are worried about coronavirus and are wearing face masks. 
but also terrifying because like student protesters in Hong Kong, they were wearing face masks to help obscure the facial recognition algorithm so they didn't get in trouble. Yeah, but it's to the point now where that's not going to hide them. So I agree that it's, it's good that this happened in China. I mean, I don't, it's not good that it happened at all, but the, the virus, I mean, but because it's helped them manage it, but it also has brought to the forefront some scary technology, in my opinion. Incredibly scary. Also, this company says that they can recognize heat signatures so they can like in a group of people, they can be like, oh, hey, you've got an elevated temperature. Maybe we should pull you aside and, and make sure you're not sick. There's benefits to a system like this. Don't get me wrong, but it's always how is it used? Well, and I think this is a, a wonderful way to talk about like, hey, legally, how should we approach this? I think legally, most of the time you should have a warrant before you use facial recognition to find a person. But in a case of national, like a pandemic is a case where I would expect even the US government to be like, yeah, guys, we're going to have to suspend democracy for a while because we need to get this under control. And I can't argue with that, provided I trust my government, which um, anyway, <laughs> that's another question. Anyway, <laughs> in that case, you would, you know, you would go through Congress and you would say, hey, we need to do this at a wide scale. And we have the technology. There's also phones. The Chinese government is using people's phones to geolocate them, understand their movements. When you get on a subway car, if someone on the car later tests positive for the coronavirus, they can actually mm -hmm. notify everybody on the car based on understanding where were, uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, where they were. And I just don't know. Do you have any thoughts here or other other news, well, Kevin? It all comes down to trust. I mean, that's what I think so much of the IoT space in general is about. It's about trust, whatever the system is. In this case, facial recognition, you know, it's helpful to keep the spread of a, a pandemic to a minimum. But the powers that be that use that system, do you trust them? And I'm not calling out China here. I'm just saying in general. And that's really what it comes down to for me. Yeah. That's why I think it's important for companies like Ring and whatnot to mature out of this like juvenile, will it work? Can I do it stage? Mm -hmm. I don't know. Let's talk about news, Kevin. All right. Here's some news bits for us. Federated Wireless, which is a company that uses CBRS spectrum. It shared wireless spectrum in the 3.5 gigahertz band. They have partnered with both Amazon and Microsoft. So Microsoft Azure, Amazon AWS, and you can now create your own CBRS band network. So it's a 5G network. Usually people are using 5G technology here and you can do it like from your AWS account or your Azure account and you can create these networks and your devices can run on them. It's pretty cool. Can I still also, use my CB radio? Uh, yes, you can. They're going to do some lovely things with databases that allow for spectrum sharing. Yay. Yay! And a lot of these networks are very local, hyper-local, not citywide, the CBRS networks. Okay, a company called Vigo that I've actually written about, they help ISPs build IoT networks that self-heal. So they, they recognize when things are wrong with devices on a whole network, and they let the ISP know that something's wrong and give action points. So either the ISP can tell the customer or the ISP can help the customer out when the customer calls to complain. Vigo now has something called the home score. And what it's doing is it's evaluating every home's quality of experience at every moment. And they give this information to ISPs and they're saying, basically, 
the devices in this home are all doing just fine, or they're all operating at 85%. And then ISPs can take this home score and use that as a understanding of when someone might call in for help. I think this is really interesting. And the home scoring also lets ISPs evaluate homes based on the devices or activities. This is a little, little less interesting or maybe more interesting. Mm. They can examine quality in homes that stream Netflix to LG smart TVs. So from there, they can basically start saying, Hey, your service sucks when it's working with this device. I think it's interesting data. I don't know if ISPs are going to do a lot that's awesome with that because, Oh, I just am skeptical of ISPs. Anyway. <laughs> it's an interesting service. I like the company. I think right. I think it's good. Okay. An Israeli chip company called Williot or Will IoT. I've never known, but I've written about them before. They are making battery-free Bluetooth radios. They have basically built a Bluetooth radio that is so power efficient that it does not need a battery. They just raised 20 million more, bringing their total funding to 70 million to date. And this is going to give them money to support their pilot projects. So I look forward to seeing this in more places. I've, I've been following this company for a while, hoping and waiting for them to do good things. So keep it up. I'm wondering what type of products we might see out of this, only because this enters my mind and what we're going to talk about my new project coming up, because sensors typically use lower powered radios than Bluetooth, but could that have an yes, impact? Yes, it could. That is one of the things they're looking at, powering sensors. Hmm. 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 But before we talk about your project, you have a security warning. Oh. Well, yes. Um, so there's an old vulnerability, a Bluetooth vulnerability called BlueKeep. Um, it's vulnerability in Microsoft's remote desktop protocol service, which is RDP, was discovered last year. And a patch was issued by Microsoft. So it's been resolved. However, healthcare hospitals that still use connected uh, medical components, ultrasounds or monitors and so on, a lot of them are still running on old versions and even unsupported versions of Microsoft and our Windows and don't have the patch. So there's a healthcare cybersecurity company called CyberMDX. They say that 22% of all Windows devices in a typical hospital are still exposed to the BlueKeep vulnerability because they don't have the patches. And as far as connected medical devices running on Windows, the figure rises to 45%. So, I mean, you're talking about anesthesia machines, radiology equipment, x-ray. IV infusion pumps. Uh, yeah, I mean, the fix is out there. The problem that I've seen, because I, you know, just going to the hospital every so often, I always look at the systems that they're running. They're all old. And I get that money, it takes money to upgrade the technologies there. But gosh darn it, don't run this old software. Yeah, especially when you think about the number of Windows 7, so old, right? There's actually, yes. most of the malware attacks are against devices running Windows 7, according to this WebRoot report that just came out this week. And they observed a 125% increase in malware targeting Windows 7 machines. Because it's not supported anymore. Yeah. So they're, they're basically like, you're just, it's like if you're locking their front door, basically now you're no longer locking your front door. You're leaving it wide open. And people are like, well, heck, I'll come in here. Uh, it's so frustrating. You're just asking for trouble. And my fear is for the hospitals and so on that 
don't think they have the money to make the upgrades, just imagine, worst case, somebody hacks into somebody's IV machine through this vulnerability. It's a known vulnerability. It's been patched. Maybe this person dies. Can you imagine the lawsuit money that you're going to have to come up with? Well, not only that, I talked to, and this was a security vendor. So, you know, take it with a grain of salt, but this person was selling security systems for hospitals, but they said that one of their hospitals actually knew that they had a vulnerability on an infusion pump, but it was attached to a patient. So they actually had to pay a nurse to sit by that infusion pump and patient all night. So in case it was infected or in case it behaved badly, the nurse could intervene. And that is not cheap. I mean, so not just a lawsuit, but even your preventative maintenance here is is hiring somebody to sit by the patient all night long. That's Yeah, no. that's, that's not the right long-term approach. So yes, we need help here. All right, Kevin, you had a big project that you're embarking upon. You want to talk about it? I do. I haven't started it yet, but I did share a post this week about what it is and what I'm curious about, what questions I'm hoping to answer. So I've been using the Samsung SmartThings Wi-Fi as the brains of the smart home for a couple of weeks. Pretty happy with it. No issues. The family acceptance factor is good. Simple to use. But, you know, it was back in 2010 when I did my first DIY smart home stuff with Insteon. And back then it was a wild west, crazy, all kinds of protocols, all kinds of coding you had to do. So I want to take another look at it in 2020. So you had suggested, hey, how about dust off that Raspberry Pi and run Home Assistant? So that's what I'm going to be doing. And Home Assistant, if you're not familiar with it, is an open source platform for the smart home. It has tons of integrations and a big, big user community based on the forums that I started going through over the past couple of days. But it is definitely DIY. I mean, it's open source. You got to download the code and install things and get it running and maintain it yourself. And you're doing it all on a Raspberry Pi. It's not like a off the shelf type of system that you would buy in Best Buy, for example. So I want to see how that goes, how well it works. And then I'm curious because in 10 years, the market has changed so much. We've gotten away from proprietary protocols and now a lot of products seem centered on Wi-Fi and Bluetooth. And I wonder if you even need, you know, something as robust as a home assistant for one thing. There's definitely benefits. I mean, having your own smart home server gives you more privacy, more the data is stored locally. Um, it'll work when you have an internet outage. So there's benefits, but I do wonder if the benefits or the cost of it, that the maintenance and the, you know, the tweaking on your own is, is really worth it. So that's what I want to find out, I hope. I can't wait. Yes, I think Home Assistant, having played with HomeBridge, which is good for the smart home community, having played with OpenHab, which was very detailed, very, very cool, but very difficult. I don't recommend it for anybody who's not really adept at this already. I'm really because Home Assistant is definitely the most approachable is why I thought that would be kind of the most interesting one to do. So I can't wait to to hear what you have. And I also cannot wait to get into a house. <laughs> kind of foisted this project off on Kevin because I'm like, I don't have a house. I can't do much. <laughs> it makes me sad. Soon. That's Soon. okay. Okay. Well, it's time for us to turn to the phone lines. 
Actually, it's just time for us to turn to the Internet of Things podcast hotline. We have a hotline that you can call and get answers to your IoT questions. You can reach us at 512-623-7424. And if you do, you will be entered to win. I know that I punted last week because I was like, I don't think we had a February prize yet. Have we named a prize for February, Kevin? I don't recall, but then again, I've been out of it for about 10 days. <laughs> yeah, so we don't know if we... But there is a prize. A, there is a prize for February. It's a surprise prize. <laughs> uh, we'll just do Philips Hue light bulbs again, because those are fun and people enjoy them. So give us a call and you will be entered to win a pair of Philips Hue light bulbs. And I think you should call us because the odds are ever in your favor. So let's get started with this week's question from David. I greatly enjoy your Internet of Things podcast. I have multiple Madame A devices in my house, primarily on five Fire TV systems. I have multiple Google Home devices in my house, and I like their answers a little better. And the Google Home has worked out that it doesn't fight with other Google Home devices because it seems to listen to the loudest microphone. My simple problem happened when I went from my Pixel 3 to a Pixel 4. The Pixel 4 is very aggressive in answering OKG questions. Unfortunately, when I'm at home, the Google Home devices also answer the same thing, cause an unpleasant echo and sometimes slightly different answers. And it's hard to hear one versus the other. Is there a solution to stop them from fighting? I would really like them to add a feature that says turn off Google Assistant when you're at a given location, and I would then put in the GPS from my home. Thank you very much. I greatly enjoy your podcast and starting to look at adding some Schlage locks. I think this is a wonderful show and a good concept. Thank you very much. Okay, David, as a Google Home and Pixel owner, I feel your pain. Sometimes this does happen to me, although not as often as it sounds like it happens to you. Unfortunately, you're right. Google has not fixed this. <laughs> they suggested to me that I do a better job training my voice. So that's an option. You can retrain your Google Assistant to recognize your voice, and theoretically that might work, but it probably won't. The only other option we have for you is it's actually not bad for my lifestyle, We'll see if it works for you. And that is to turn the ability for your Pixel phone to recognize the phrase, hey, G, vocally, to turn that off. So if you turn that off, then only your assistant devices will recognize that phrase, and then your phone will not be competing with them to go off. You can keep your assistant on your phone for either touching the keypad or touching the screen, or squeezing it depending on your pixel. So I have a 3A, I can squeeze it, the 4s can squeeze, the 2s can squeeze. So if you keep that on, then you don't have to find you can do it like it's not hands free, but it's only one hand and you don't have to look at It's very intentional though, which I, I like. This is actually how I was set up when I was using a pixel phone. And it's how I'm set up now using an iPhone. I know it doesn't always listen for that wake word. But I have a widget, the Google widget on my iPhone that I have the microphone button there. I press the microphone and then I do my voice assistant things. That's how I do it with all the smart speakers in my house. It's just a very, again, very intentional. If I'm asking 
on my phone, it's because I want to use my phone. So it's worked well for me with the Pixel and the iPhone. Yes. So how do you do this? So it can kind of be a little confusing to turn this feature off, the voice recognition, the always listening function. I don't think it's very intuitive, but there is a Google support article on this that we can link to. But basically, you're going to press the hold button on your Pixel phone. At the bottom right, you are going to tap the explore icon. Then you'll see your profile picture for your Google account at the top right of the next screen. Tap that, then hit settings, then hit assistant. And you should see an option under assistant devices that says turn on Google Assistant and turn on or turn off Hey G, the wake word. If you turn it off there, then it will not be listening all the time. So you leave the assistant on, but you turn the wake word listening off. And then as long as you have the pixel that can squeeze for the assistant, you can simply just squeeze instead of saying the wake word. And to make sure you have your squeeze function on, you go into your pixel and you go into settings and then under system, there is a section for gestures and you just go into there and you turn active edge on and you can set your squeeze sensitivity from light to firm. Mine is a little closer on the lighter side, but if you want it to be I just can't squeeze very hard, I guess. And then you have to make sure squeeze for your assistant is turned on and allow when screen is off and then you'll be good to go. Yeah. Just one, two, three. Lickety split. <laughs> yeah, I know. It, it's, it, it's, it's, it's not hard. Well, it's, 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 it's not difficult. It's probably harder to explain than to do. However, it is still really a workaround for a problem that Google needs to solve. Yes. We are with you on that. All right. So. Remember, if you would like to be entered to win Philips Hue light bulbs, give us a call at 512-623-7424 and leave us your question. Perhaps we can help you answer it, even if it is just kind of a workaround. All right, that concludes this portion of the show, but please stay tuned for our interview with Taj Menku, who is CEO and co-founder of Cognitive Systems. They have built a technology that analyzes disturbances in a home's Wi-Fi network to detect motion. And he's going to talk about how that works, who's using it, and how the firm is trying to protect your privacy. It is a really good interview. I encourage you to listen in. And now, a word from our sponsor. This week's sponsor is DigiCert. Hey everyone, we are taking a quick break from the Internet of Things podcast for a message from our sponsor. This week's sponsor is DigiCert, and I have Mike Nelson, who is VP of IoT Security. So today we're going to be talking about smart cities and smart buildings, and I would love to just get from you, what kind of IoT devices are you seeing deployed in these smart buildings and cities? Yeah, in these ecosystems, we're commonly seeing sensors being deployed to track things like utility consumption, to monitor traffic lights, even measure garbage cans. In smart buildings, we're seeing things like HVAC systems, uh, lighting, and even parking stalls introduce sensors to track their utilization. So what are some of the benefits you see when you have these IoT devices deployed? Governments and businesses that are deploying these are really doing so in an effort to save time and energy and, and money. But to get a little bit more specific, governments are looking to save money from having better management of their lighting systems and smart buildings. And so, you know, a lot of it is catered around those things of saving time, energy and money. 
We all like that. So what kind of data is being collected? Yeah, we see mostly two types of data being generated. Automation, which helps automate decisions like a smart thermostat. The second type is status data, which tells you the state of a thing. Got it. All right. So given all this data, what kind of security challenges are there? Yeah, so as the number of these devices are deployed, there are more entry points for hackers, and those numbers are growing rapidly. And so the importance of securing all those connected points is really important. Integrity becomes really important as governments and businesses are taking this data and making decisions based on it. So knowing that the data is accurate, that it's been handled in a confidential way is really critical. And then, of course, leveraging good authentication approaches to make sure you're keeping the bad actors out. So how could these devices be improved to help stop security breaches? Most security breaches that we see involve one of three vulnerabilities. The first one is a lack of good authentication, and that means knowing who or what is connecting to your device. The second one is around the confidentiality of the data, handling the data at rest and in motion. And finally, the third one that we commonly see is around a lack of integrity and knowing that the data that you're receiving or that you're sending can be trusted and that it hasn't been manipulated or a man-in-the-middle attack performed on it while it's been in transit. And so putting solutions in place that solve for authentication, for encryption and integrity is really a good starting point for IoT security. And once these devices are in place, how can cities or consumers stay on top of keeping these devices secure? Yeah, as, as you know, security is an evolving game. And so allowing devices to be updated through over-the-air updates is very important to ongoing security for these devices. And where can our listeners go to find out more about DigiCert and how to secure smart cities and smart buildings? Your listeners can go to digicert.com and we have a section focused specifically on IoT deployments and one targeted for smart cities and smart buildings. Welcome back to the Internet of Things podcast. This is your host, Stacey Higginbotham, and today's guest is Taj Minku, who is CEO and co-founder of Cognitive Systems. Hi, Taj. How are you doing today? Good. Thanks for having me. Oh, I am excited because you guys have built some really interesting technology. I had been talking to people about it after CES and even prior to that. So, Taj, tell people what you've done at Cognitive. So, yeah, we're pretty excited. The, the technology, and I'll talk about the application. So we have produced a technology where we put software on Wi-Fi access points. And with that software that's running on the access point, it makes all the client devices that are connected without having any other software to be motion sensors. So they now become a motion network that's made up of all the client devices that are connected to your access point. So then you ride applications on that. So now you have this motion network. You can now, when there's motion in your house, you can sort of say where that motion is. You can say, hey, motion is happening beside the Google Home or motion is happening beside a TP smart plug. And then you can take that and sort of provide the applications such as home monitoring or home awareness, knowing what's happening in the home. Like, for example, when did people get home? Maybe your son came home at four. You can see that. You can also use it as a security system because it's basically monitoring everything that's happening in your house. You can also, after you get some sort of alert, you can actually go to live view and see how this motion is moving throughout the house. It's moving from the Google Home. Maybe then it moved to the Apple TV, and you can see that. And there's also applications in wellness 
You wanted to monitor somebody, making sure they're getting up, making sure what time they're, they're going to sleep, how much activity they have, and so forth. And then you can also integrate this back into, into IoT land where you can then activate certain devices to behave. So, for example, you come home, your thermostat goes up, and if you leave, it goes down, and then you can sort of integrate that directly to some of your devices that you have in your house that can use this information going forward. Okay, that is a lot and some excellent use cases. So basically, this is going to turn any of my Wi-Fi devices into part of this giant network sensor inside my house that can detect motion. Yes, that's correct. Okay, so some questions about how this is going to happen and how this works. So does every Wi-Fi device have to have your special software running on it? No, the only device that has to have the software is the access point. And the clients don't have to have any software. There could be anything that you buy from the store. And that device then becomes a motion sensor. So the only software that needs to be placed is on the access point. And those are the people that we work in terms of our business. Okay, so my router has to be updated to use this software. And right now you're talking with companies like Plume. You're talking to ISPs. You're talking to some of the chip vendors who work with the router makers to get your product into routers. Did I miss anybody? Uh, Yeah, and we're also talking to the people that provide some of the hardware back to the ISPs, like the ODMs. Got it. Okay. So so you're doing a, a bang up job getting where you need to be. You mentioned in some of your use cases, things like understanding when my son got home from school, for example. How does it know that my son is home? So we're part of the Wi-Fi network, and when, for example, the son comes home, he has a mobile phone, the network knows, hey, that mobile phone is now connected to the Wi-Fi network, and there's also motion because the door opened, and then it can associate those two events, it fuses them together, and represents it back to the user in some nice graphical form that says, hey, Johnny's home, and it, it, it knows that because of those two events taking place. And that is displayed to the user And so they'll know that's what's happening. Got it. So I'm going to get this notification based on all of this amazing math happening behind the scenes. So let's talk about some of this amazing math. You mentioned knowing that a door opened. You mentioned tracking somebody's mobile phone. How complicated is it to take disturbances in the RF network in my house and say, this is a door opening versus this is a person moving around? Like how many things can it identify? How much time does it take to build the math around that? Yeah, so what we do from a a very fundamental level is the access point sort of sends out these sounding signals, if you like, and the clients sort of pick it up. And then we look at the disturbances in the spectrum while we're sending these signals out because we're all living in the RF world in that case. And we, we look at that and then we sort of discern what it is. So a couple of things that we classify. We do classify if there is a fan, for example, Most people don't want to know that the motion of the fan is there. So we sort of filter that information off because in a home, there is a lot of mechanical movement and we don't want to display that for the user. So that's completely filtered off. And there's also other things that are filtered off, uh, for example, pets. So pets, their volume is a little bit different. They're shaped differently than human. They even have different ways in which they move, including cats. And so they're filtered off. So for example, in my house, I have uh, a 50-pound dog and I have three cats. So I don't pick up notifications of them moving at all. But if I look at live view, we just sort of still show it to the person. But on the notification, we will completely filter that out for them. 
So there's certain things that we don't provide back to the user simply because it's not usable information to them. And we, we take that information and we just filter it off for the user. All right. Although I do want to know when my dog jumps up on my bed because she is not supposed to, and yet she does. <sighs> yes. <laughs> All right. This is really cool technology. And when we talk about things like, hey, I get alerts, like a security alert, or maybe, you know, we, we've talked in the future, maybe you guys can use something like this for fall detection. Today, you can just use it for if your elderly parents are living alone and you want to make sure they keep waking up in the morning, you can do that. But it, it does raise some privacy concerns. One issue that I think people need to understand is what you actually can see. So you had mentioned to me that you can tell when something, roughly the volume of a human is moving around the house. But can you tell what kind of activities I'm doing? How much can you tell? So because we are looking at these signals, there's certain things that we can't discern. So for example, I, I can't really tell if you're doing jumping jacks or you're running on the spot. I will look at that as that you are, there is just motion in that area and I could localize where that motion is happening and I can tell you how much motion is happening, but I can't really say what that motion is per se. I don't have the full context as for example in the camera, but that's a little bit of an advantage for us because most people wouldn't like to have a camera in their bedroom, but this is just sensing motion and you can't really discern what that motion is. You just know it's happening and sort of where it's happening. So we take away that full context that a camera would, would provide, and we just provide you information about the motion and where that is. Okay. Now, it can be quite granular. So you mentioned something you mentioned to me earlier that you can detect breathing patterns, for example. And I think that would be really interesting, like if I wanted to monitor my baby for SIDS. But it's also a little weird because yes. you might also be able to tell if I'm like, I don't know, in my bedroom breathing heavily, so maybe I'm having sex or something, and that might concern me. How do you kind of balance these things out? One thing that we do is we're completely compliant with all the privacy laws, and we watch the privacy laws a lot because we know they are changing. So we always are watching them, and we're making sure that we're completely compliant. The other thing that we do is everything's encrypted, uh, whether it's moving along a channel or communicating or it's stored. Everything's encrypted. The other part of it is that when we work with our partners, usually our partner has their cloud and we have our cloud. And we have cloud-to-cloud -cloud exchange between us two. Their cloud typically has the account information and we have the motion data. And when they want the motion data for a specific person, they send us a token. So we don't know anything about who that person is. There's just a token sent to us. We say, oh, that token is associated with this data. And we send that data back to our customer's cloud. So our customer doesn't even know what's actually happening per se in terms of the database we have for whatever that person is or that token as we describe on our side. So even at that level, we don't know who the person is and our customer doesn't know the data associated with the motion. So it sort of separates those two. Okay, so to be clear, you're going to first have to build some sort of algorithm to figure out, am I having sex or doing jumping jacks, which in many of those cases is probably not commercially interesting to anyone. 
So that's one. Two, then it's all encrypted. Three, you're going to store that data on your cloud that is completely unrelated to my account information. So even if I am worried about my ISP getting some weird information about me, they're going to have to get the information from you first, and they're never going to be tied to the account, correct? Or the ISP will be able to tie it to the account because they're going to deliver me a motion notification, but they're not going to have the baseline information about what's happening. They're just getting, is there a person moving or whatever they've asked for? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That makes me feel right. a lot better. Because in a camera, if, if I'm looking at this as an alternative to having cameras, a camera, anyone could look at it and be like, oh my gosh, I know exactly what they're doing. They're doing jumping jacks. But here, you would have to do a lot of effort to even see that. So that's a little bit more comforting. What about law enforcement? It seems like having the bifurcations between clouds may help there. But let's say law enforcement wants to know if I'm murdering someone in the house. And they're like, hey, is that giant blob making a a suspicious murdering motion? I don't know. I don't know how if they came to us, we wouldn't be able to identify any of that information because we don't know what the token or what that user is in our in our infrastructure. So sure, they could come to us, but we, we wouldn't know actually. Okay, that is good. Let's end on kind of an exciting note, which is how far can you take this? What can you tell? We, we talked about, you know, fall detection, and that's not here today, correct? It's just motion that's here today. Yes. So the things that we are working on is, so obviously the, the monitoring and providing more awareness. So, you know, providing more context of what's actually happening and exposing that to the user. So when the house wakes up, how much sleep the house had, uh, knowing how the activity level of the house is, where most of the activity is happening. So it's like awareness. And then that just naturally falls into wellness. So if I want to watch my elderly parents without having cameras, but I want to know that they're doing well, that information of when people are waking up, how much activity they're having, where that activity is, sort of gives me an indication of you know, their, their well-being. And then the other part of it is just simply the being able to extend this to other IoT devices where we could know, okay, I, I walk into a room, lights turn on, and other, other applications are also preventing people from having injuries. So, for example, we know for falls, one of the biggest problems is that people wake up in the middle of the night, they want to go to the washroom, and, you know, an elderly, they lose their footing uh, sometimes, and then they fall down, and that could be really bad for them. But if they get up and the lights turn on, it sort of, activates your brain a little bit and then you correct your footing because now the lights are on and then sort of prevents you from having that having that problem. So it's still part of the IoT, but it's leading into the, the wellness as, as well. So these are all the things that we can sort of provide going forward in terms of the, the technology that we've developed. Got it. And that is really exciting. And I'll ask you because you were at CES, I was at CES, and wellness was a big trend. And prior to this, I feel like smart homes were a big trend. And we were really focused on kind of building a context aware smart home. We're still really far off from that. And I'm curious, with smart home with wellness, what do you think is probably the trend coming down the pike? So what we see at CS is pretty much the same as you saw. We see a lot of people focusing on the wellness and elderly and, and simply because of the baby boomers and the, the trend that is happening that people want to stay at home and be taken care of rather than going to you know a third party home or whatever. 
They, they prefer to stay in the home that they're in. And that's a trend that is continuing on. And the amount of um, money and resources put on that is quite large. Like, for example, having a nurse at home, it can be as much as 40000 to $50,000 a year. But if there's a way in where you can augment some of these, these sensors to sort of help you to know how the elderly is doing on an ongoing basis, so you can just look at your application and say, oh, they woke up at 6. And it's actually just a peace of mind rather than looking for problems all the time. You just say, oh, they woke up, okay, they're moving around, okay, turn off the app, okay, I feel good, and I feel good because I know they're okay, uh, I have a sense of calm now, and if I want to check up and again, I can do that. And it, I think this is going to be more of a trend, and you're seeing a lot of startups coming up and investors investing into companies that are sort of focused in this area. But it is a very big topic now. It's going to be a big topic for at least the next 10 years or so. Okay. And then you mentioned that your parents have this in their house. And I'm just curious, I I assume you put it there. I assume they're proud of you and all of that good stuff. But how did you convince them or how do they react to this system? So, you know, they're my parents, so they're obviously proud. So I I got the system into their house. But one thing it did help um, is, you know, there was a a case where, you know, they're waking up at around 4, 4 a.m., and that was happening for a couple of weeks. And so I called them and said, hey, you know, wh- why, are, why are you guys waking up so early in the morning? And then my mom says, well, you know, I have this ringing in my ear that keeps waking me up. And uh, I said, okay, well, let's, let's make an appointment with the doctor. So we made an appointment with the doctor. So she went to the doctor and the doctor recommended that she, she purchases a gadget that sits beside her bedside, which would then make this background noise like waves and so forth. And that actually helped her to continue sleeping after four. So then after that, she was, she was waking her normal time, which is about eight o'clock. But this is an example of an anecdotal story where I didn't have cameras. With cameras, I would have never really saw this because I'd have to be watching it. This sort of provided a way to solve. It wasn't a big problem. It's not life or death, but it just sort of made her life a little bit more comfortable. And, and it is less intrusive than cameras. My parents would never have a camera in their house. It it just won't fly with them. But this they felt comfortable with. Yes. Okay. Well, Taj, thank you so much for coming on the show this week. I appreciate it. And I'm excited to see your technology in action. Well, thanks for having me. Appreciate it. That's it for this week. Thanks so much for listening. And remember, if you'd like more IoT news, sign up for my newsletter at stacyoniot.com. We'll see you next week. Thank you.